صباح الخير جود مورنينج دي ليسنرز يو ليسنينج تو راديو 3 سي ار اون 855 اي Palestine Remembered is Australia's only English language radio program that is totally dedicated to Palestine. We'd like to welcome those listening on 855 and those that will join us on podcast at 3cr.org.au. Thanks for joining us. Stay with us and enjoy the episode. Good morning, Melbourne. Uh, continuing our theme of magnificent women who join us on Palestine Remembered, we're joined by Danielle, who's um, back in back in Australia, but we're going to take you through her story. Good morning, Danielle. How are you? Good morning, Nasa. I'm good, thanks. How are you? You're really well. Now, Danielle, we've had um, a series of three women recently appear on, on Palestine Remembered, um, and this is, you know, accidentally, but uh, a recognition of International Women's Week. But we had Mel from Badil and Janine from Australia, and now I've got you, Danielle. Now, Danielle, um, you're a an Australian woman, and um, you've come to Palestine. How, can you tell us your journey, how you got to knowing about Palestine? Um, yeah, sure. So my, my background has been to work in humanitarian contexts for the last 10 years or so. So um, Palestine was the most recent place that I was, um, and I was there for the longest time because it spoke to me in a way that the other contexts hadn't spoke to me. But um, prior to that, I was also in other countries across Africa, the Middle East and Asia as well, working um, as a humanitarian. Uh, growing up here in Melbourne, I have my parents, um, well, my mum's background is Lebanese, so there has been this natural draw to the Middle East. I, I don't speak Arabic, and so in many ways I feel like a, a fake um, Arabic person because I, I reach Middle Eastern countries and people expect me to be from there. They can see from my face that I have um, some background from the Middle East, but because I haven't grown up there and I don't have the language, I'm a little bit of an, an outsider but also part of the family. And the culture of the Middle East <clears throat> has felt somehow like home to me. So I feel really natural and comfortable living in the Middle East. And the hospitable nature is really common to my family. So um, over the past, sort of since 2011, when I started working as a humanitarian and I started in Africa, um, I've been across some of the most devastating contexts um, in the world, I think. I haven't been to places like Iraq or Afghanistan but I've been to some very difficult places. However, reaching to to Palestine, and in particular for me, Gaza, um, I'm still deeply moved and shocked by the um, the lack of equality and injustice that we see there and that the world continues to, to sort of watch on or, or not watch um, as things unfold in that space. And um, it has d- deeply touched my heart. Mm. So uh, aside from your humanitarian work, two and a half years ago you end up in Gaza? Yes, yeah, so in 2016. Okay. And you spent how long? Yeah, I was two and a half years there. So I got back sort of, yeah, about a year ago. Oh, about a year ago. So two and a half years in Gaza. Okay, day one, getting there, how how was that? So um, I was really lucky, I think, because – and that's something that I found having met many Palestinians who've not been able to get inside Gaza, even 
even people in the West Bank who have family in Gaza and who have not been able to see their family for a long time and cannot even reach Jerusalem. Um, it's quite shocking to see this disconnection of, of culture, um, which is on purpose as well. Um, but for me, because I started off working actually for the United Nations, I was working for UNICEF for a short mission. Um, and that time I was really working to um, help restore the water and sanitation in Gaza after the 2014 war. So even though it was 2016, by the time I was sent to Gaza, um, you know, things still had not resumed. Even now, there's still so many things that still need to be fixed from the impacts of 2014. Um, and because I was always wanting to go to Gaza, actually, when I, when the war happened in 2014, I'd been in Jordan working for the Syrian conflict and I desperately wanted to go and support. And seeing what happened in 2014 had really touched me. So when I had the opportunity, I, I saw a position where I could be a, a water and sanitation engineer in Gaza for UNICEF. I just jumped at it. Um, and that was sort of my first foothold inside Gaza. And once there, I was able to... Um, actually, people met me, I made contacts, and I was able to get another job, which then gave me another two years um, inside Gaza. And so what, what was that next project? So then I ended up running the office for um, Action Against Hunger, which is a Spanish um, non-government organisation. Um, it was It's much smaller than the UN, um, and it's in so many ways offered me much more freedom than I would have had working within the UN system, which I had done uh, for a few years. Um, working for an NGO, though you get paid almost nothing, it was the, the least paying job I've ever had. Um, but it was such an opportunity to stay in Gaza and to work amongst the people there who I could just, I, I wanted to be there and I wanted to support this cause. Um, and my role was to run an office of, we had eventually about 30 to 40 staff who were doing various programs from again, water and sanitation projects through to providing women with um, opportunities to run their own businesses and to have agricultural projects and various different kind of livelihood projects. So let, let's, I mean, because the reality is Israel portrays Gaza as, you know, a hotbed of terrorism and everybody in in Gaza is a Hamas uh, operative and they just want to drive every Jew into the sea um, and they're terrible human beings, which is why we can keep it uh, an open-air prison. But tell us... A reality, like a, just a normal day. It's Tuesday, you're woken up to the sound of prayer. Mm. What's life like? Yeah. Um, it's definitely not as you just described. <laughs> um, so for me, you what, know. What, they're lying? <laughs> I can't believe it. Surprise, surprise. <laughs> um, yeah, I would wake up. I mean, I had a beautiful um, place next to the Mediterranean Sea. And I think the first thing that shocks me, when I, f the first thing that shocked me and shocks everybody when they enter Gaza for the first time is actually how... It doesn't meet your expectations. So we've seen on the news this sort of very dark image of a of a place where there's lots of you know smoke, especially you know the news since 2014 up till today. It's really this you know burning tires. So there's this smoke. There's people throwing stones. There's grey, dark kind of thing. And then you arrive in Gaza, and you're on the Mediterranean coast. And there is a city. There's, you know, of course, there's a huge population in Gaza. There's high-rise buildings. And from the first view of Gaza, you don't see what you have imagined. You don't see a people suffering. You don't see um, a place that's just ridden by war. You see lovely people. I wake up in the morning, um, yes, to the sound of the prayer, to, uh, the call to prayer. 
Um, and then you hear people selling fruit on the streets. You have you have the diversity of people still on donkey carts and with horses. Then you have cars driving next to them. So you have this real diversity from one end of um, people just living a really normal life as they would as we have still, you know, Bedouin communities there. Um, and then you have, you know, businessmen and businesswomen who are running around in a daily hustle. So it's much like any city um, until you sort of dig a little bit beneath the surface and then you see how it is different. So how is it different? <laughs> I mean, let's dig a little bit. So I think obviously the politics of the situation means that no matter how hard we tried, um, and that's something that kind of, you know, it's really hard to live with because I worked there for two and a half years and I struggled to see the impact of my work because I'm unable to make a political change. And so obviously a lot of what's happening in Gaza is um, is impacted by politics, either from the Israeli side or also from, um, you know, the, the feuding between the two Palestinian factions, Fatah and Hamas. Um, and the impacts of that on the people in Gaza is... The lack of electricity, I think, is just the core feature of daily life. Um, when I was there, I, it varies, but when I was there, there was four hours of electricity every day. Um, and this just has a huge impact for so many things. We have um, raw sewerage being pumped out to sea at a quantity that we cannot imagine. So you look at the beautiful Mediterranean Sea and it is just full of shit and literal. You smell it, you wake up in the morning and you open your window and you can smell that coming from the sea. So although you see something beautiful, and this is what I think Gaza is, you, you see something beautiful, but then the, there's always some sort of um, challenge beneath that. So people can't, some people still go to the sea on a hot day, but there's no respite. Where do you go? You can't have an air conditioning running because there's no electricity. Um, a lot of people don't even have fans. The elderly, there's no, you know, the lift in a, in a so... Gaza being one of the most populated areas in the world, um, there's lots of high-rise buildings, so people live, you know, in huge, t- tall buildings. But with no electricity, how do you reach, you know, the floor that your house is on? So you have to wait for that specific moment where the generator will be run, and you pay a fee for the generator to be put on exactly at, you know, maybe it's two o'clock, and then you can go up um, in the lift. Otherwise, you have to walk up these endless flights of stairs. And for the elderly and the young and the sick and the pregnant, that's just impossible. Um, so this, this electricity, it, the lack of electricity affects every part of life. The hospitals don't run the way they should. Dialysis patients have constantly at risk of not being able to, to receive the treatment that they need. Um, from you know children who are born prematurely, they're at risk. Every, every part of the life is impacted by the fact that there's no electricity or limited electricity. The water is contaminated. Um, only people who have enough money to pay for a generator are able to really live a fairly normal life. In spite of that, though, in spite of that, mm. people get married. <laughs> they they do. Children. All they, the time. Know, have birthday parties. Um, yeah. What what uh, an inspirational story! I mean, we're, that's the yeah. doom and gloom, and we speak about it often here. And the and the reality yeah. of um, the pressure cooker. I mean, you hermetically seal two million people, uh, air, land, sea. Calculate the daily calorific intake of food required, and only la- allow that in, um, and then turn on the power for two to four hours a day. It's amazing that they haven't. It's not worse sometimes. I think. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but how about a, a good story? Tell us, like, share a, a memory of a, a happy occasion. I think for me it's people's – I'm not sure if we can call it resilience. There's certainly an element of resilience, but this um, acceptance of life and that they will make the most of what they've got, I think this is – truly inspirational every day I would come to the office and I've come from here I come from Melbourne I'm extraordinarily lucky um and so when I come to work sometimes I'm the one who's like god guys this is terrible like how and people are still smiling and they're still getting on with life in a way that just would uplift me and enable me to do my job every day um and one beautiful example for me is like the women who in so many ways, their lives are, are uh, they don't have the same access to opportunities that I have. So I'm able to be working in Gaza with them. And um, I had a particularly, I'm not sure what it is about the Gazan women, but every woman I seemed to encounter was incredibly intelligent, incredibly well educated, as are the men. But the women have this fire inside them, mm-hmm. which is truly um, inspirational. Awesome. And we would often have these women's days where we would go to a chalet. So I don't know, this term chalet for me was really unusual, but it's basically, it's a huge thing in Gaza. There's houses along the along the beach or even inland um, where they'll have walls so that there is privacy and you can hire them for a day or overnight even. And um, and it's quite a business, I think. For, so the business people have managed, managed to make a business out of this in Gaza. And you can hire this chalet, which is just a house with a pool usually. Um, and we would all go, the women from my office, we would all get together and we'd meet at this chalet. And for one day, we would pump the music by the pool. We'd be dancing, belly dancing around together um, and just telling stories. Women who, um, most of the women, aren't able, they don't know how to swim because they, they're not you know, able to do that growing up. Some who had access to pools could, um, but very few. So they're all, you know, with their blow-up um, arm bands, like the little kids floaties. have here, the floaties, exactly. With their floaties getting in the pool, teaching each other how to swim, teaching each other how to dance, um, with the music blaring. And I was, you know, it was interesting for me the first time I went to one of these functions because I was like, hey, day by the pool, grab my book, we're going to sit in silence on my towel not dressing up, wearing my shorts and a T-shirt. And I get there and the women are glammed up. This is their moment to really enjoy together. And this camaraderie and this just, um, I don't even know how to describe it. I would just sit there watching them and smiling. It made me so happy to see all these women who just were letting go. They, For their whole lives, they have such a responsibility as mother, as wife, as often they're like the the, um, breadwinner for the family. Um, And then we have these moments on a a weekend where we could get together, eat food, um, drink juice, dance around and just let our hair down. And it was uh, amazing for me to see that and just to see how we find fun when, you know, there's no nightclubs in Gaza, there's no pubs, there's not the same, um, even cinemas, it's really hard to find entertainment and People there are often really bored, and this is the way that they find their enjoyment. Um, so I always loved those days. Yeah, yeah. It sounds, I mean, look, my cheeks are hurting from smiling so much, but it sounds like pure, unadulterated joy, really liberated was. from any sense of occupation and oppression. That's In right. that very moment, you know, they're just citizens of Earth. Absolutely. It happen all the time. Um, stay tuned and join us after this break. 
You're listening to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. We're joined by Danielle, who's uh, sharing with us her two and a half years in Palestine. Now, Danielle, before you left, we had President Trump decide to recognize uh, Jerusalem as Israel's capital, a unified Jerusalem. Um, on Nakba Day, um, which the Palestinians in, in Gaza decided to uh, protest. You were there, Danielle, when um, Israelis took up elevated positions and using high-powered scopes and high-powered rifles decided to um, kill tens of Palestinians and injure many, many others. Um, can you tell us about that day? Yeah, um, it was a really, I think in my whole life, is probably the worst day of my life um, for a couple of reasons. One was, you know, we'd known that this was, we kind of expected this to happen. Um, the The return march had been going on for about six weeks prior. It started on the 30th of March and every Friday people were going to the fence to demonstrate and it started as this really beautiful resistance movement which was each Friday there was a different theme um, so I don't know how much of that made it to the news especially in Australia but each thing each each Friday they would go in they would, would have like the burning of the tires was the first one then there was burning of flags and there was various different themes that were being used and it was families taking their children to the fence setting up picnics not too far away most of the area along the fence is agricultural land and even in a normal day um, Israel has a there's what's called a um, I think the buffer zone or I think that's the term we use um, where you can't actually go within a certain distance of the fence so some, somewhere it's like 200 meters but Israel determine what that distance is so up to areas where there's particularly where there's probably fertile agricultural land and people could make a bit of a business it tends to be closer to one kilometer one and a half kilometers and Israel will come in and and um, very regularly will come and um, destroy those areas and shoot at people who might be in that space. So this fence is contentious anyway and um, people were taking this opportunity to set up these points along the fence but to make it a peaceful protest. Um, And as we've seen, I mean, Palestinians generally have a lot less in the way of weapons than the Israelis, so it was really about, you know, flying flags and... um, and you know, throwing rocks and dancing, and people were doing dabka along the fence, and there was a huge kind of community sense to to the return march. Um, we, as you know, the international community inside Gaza, knew that there was a big potential that this was going to flare up um, on the fourteenth of March and uh, the fourteenth of May, sorry. And with the decision of Trump to declare Jerusalem as the capital of um, of Israel that this was going to be a very important day. And so we were planning for war. Um, We had gathered together as a um, community and worked out ways that we would, how we thought this war was going to unfold based on what had happened in the previous wars that we'd seen over the past decade. And um, in some ways there was such a um, excitement leading to this moment where I think Palestinians we're like, this is our opportunity to really push for what we believe is right and we want to go home. 
we want to go to our lands on the other side of, of this fence. Um, the inhumane response of Israel to the thousands of people who had turned up at the fence that day, because, I mean, busloads of people were bussed into the fence. Um, it was a real gathering of solidarity and the Israelis responded with such force that I find absolutely shocking in terms of they thought they could get away with it and they have gotten away with it, which I think is the worst part. Um, from my end, I, I was inside Gaza. Although we had evacuated most of our staff that we thought were non-essential, um, but I was still inside with a few um, international staff, um, not many, but we were planning in case this did escalate to a war how would we respond what would we be able to do how could we provide food to people if people were um, separated from other parts of Gaza we had many many plans in place Um, and on the day all I could do which I think is why it touched me so deeply was that all I could do was watch the news I'm sitting in my office again with beautiful views of the Mediterranean Sea and I can just hear ambulances going past my window and I, there were ambulances every two minutes. I, I actually stood on my balcony and looked at my watch and every two minutes someone who was injured or dying or dead was was going past my window. Um, now, I did have an office which was fairly close to Al-Shifa Hospital, which is the largest hospital in Gaza, but even so I couldn't even imagine how many people were affected by um, the violence that day and all I could do was sit and watch and I, I, I found that to be so disempowering um, and I think that that became a little bit of why Palestinians were still going so people knew the risk and they would still go because they could at least take some control over their situation. Um, so for me that day was just watching numbers on a screen increase, the numbers of death, dead, the numbers of injured, the numbers of people whose lives would be impacted forever. You had families who lost their breadwinning husband or their their son who was going to be, you know, their person to look after them and their families, women left widowed, um, people who had been injured in their particularly their legs, so Israel mostly focused on hitting people in the leg, which meant that the the impact on the health system would just be huge for years and years and years to come. So just that day, although it was one day, um, the impact of that will go forever, for, for a very long time anyway. And I think after that, it was the 14th of May and it was the 15th that we had expected it really to blow up. And overnight there were... Um, some kind of political conversations between Israel and others and Hamas and Egypt, I believe. And so on the 15th, people in Gaza were ready. They wanted, they wanted this to escalate. They wanted the world to see what was happening in Gaza. And the biggest disappointment to the Gazans was that on the 15th, nothing happened. And I, I, that feeling of coming into... Um, Gaza itself was so quiet. I can't remember it being so quiet and getting to work on the the, the morning of the 15th and sort of waiting, like, what's happening next? And people were so disappointed that Hamas, um, who at that point were, you know, really in control of the, the negotiations, had given in to whatever it was that had happened overnight. They wanted to keep fighting and they felt like all the loss, all the people that had died, all the people who had gone to that fence 
and demonstrated all that loss was for nothing. And so it was a real sense of disappointment. And we had been planning for this war. And I think, sadly, as as conflicting internally it was for me, we almost wanted a war because we just wanted to scream from our depths of our lungs, look here, pay attention to what's going on here, come and help change this situation. And nothing happened and still nothing happens. And I think um, that's for me the Great Return March was just, you know, and it continued and it continued. I don't know if it's still going on now, but yeah. yeah. Um, And who, you know, it got to this point where people die every Friday and people stop paying attention and another person dies and another person is injured and the world just turns their back and gets on with life and people just forget. And I think for me the story of Gaza is a story of um, trying to get people to pay attention and that return march was really can the international community please you know, pay attention and help us and that call went unanswered. And it remains to go unanswered. I mean the reality is the great return march happens every Friday and yeah. um, that whilst the, the number of dead has diminished and because of the public relations uh, exercise of uh, of um, Israel's machine to uh, cleanse, make it look better. I mean, the reality is we've been de- dehumanised to a level, you know, they're brown, Muslim, um, anti-Semites, we can shoot them with impunity. Everybody's dealing with this same scourge of radical Islam uh, and us killing them, we're just saving them from you. So we're at that level of why it doesn't get reported in the media. But then there's only so many people you can kill from a sniper's vantage point. So then the, the, the order goes out, just maim them, you know, take out some knees. And we had a report come out um, last week uh, in Israeli papers, and, and it was reported in Haaretz, and there's some quotes um, by some of these former snipers, you know, bragging. Um, I kept the casing of every round I fired, said one of them. I have them in my room, so I don't have to make up an estimate. I know 52 definite hits. Is 52 a lot, was the question. I haven't really thought about it. It's not hundreds of liquidations like in the movie American Sniper. We're talking about knees. I'm not making light of it. I shot a human being, but still, where do you stand in comparison to others who served in your battalion? From the point of view of hits, I have the most. In my battalion, they would say, look, here comes the killer. When I come back from the field, I would ask, well, how many did you shoot today? You have to understand that before we showed up, knees were the hardest thing to rack up. There was a story about one sniper who had 11 knees all told. And people thought no one could outdo him. And then I bought seven, eight knees in one day within a few hours. I almost broke his record. I mean, this is an Israeli sniper who served record, um, on the border bragging about his killing. I mean, I don't like often talking about um, the degradation of Israeli society, but we're actually getting to a really terrible place. We've only got a minute to go, um, Danielle. Perhaps one more uplifting story. <laughs> That's a hard thing to back up <laughs> from there. Um, look, I think I think to today, I think the the people of Gaza just who still stay there and who make the choice to stay inside Gaza as their show of resistance. Um, my hats go off to them because they're living a tough life, and in some cases they can get out and they can find a better life for themselves. Um, but on behalf of all of us, they're staying in there and um, still being happy and still. Uh, accepting where they are and making the most of every day. And I think it's for them that, you know, we should keep fighting. Fantastic. The greatest uh, 
greatest support we can show our Palestinian brothers and sisters is to remain resilient and uh, they're staying steadfast. And, uh, you know, we're not going anywhere. So free, free Palestine. Thanks so much, Danielle. Thank you. The sound save the rich like me. I once was lost, I was blind, I was poor and hungry. Amazing grace set me free. Safe.